Chapters 9 and 10 of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 9. The Sea King's Daughter. The next day the passengers all arose early to go on deck, but most of them had to lie down again before they had finished dressing, and to remain in their staterooms, where they were attended by the stewardess. The ship was approaching Queenstown. All our party, however, came upon deck. Some of them were sick enough, but they all thought that the fine air of the upper deck was better for them than the close air of the staterooms, or even of the cabin. The weather-beaten and weather-proof old skipper and his grandniece, little Rosemary Hedge, were the only ones who remained perfectly well, with a keen appetite for breakfast, and a wholesome enjoyment of the sharp March morning. "'How is it with you, my girl?' inquired the skipper, when they all met in the bows, and exchanged their morning greetings, and compared notes about endured or threatened sickness. "'How is it with you? You look as fresh and as bright as a brand-new sixpence, and you are as steady on your pins as if you had been to sea all your life.' "'She has been to sea longer than that,' put in Wynnette, the incorrigible. "'She is only seventeen years old, but she has been to sea about two hundred years, to my certain knowledge, and how many thousand years before that I don't know. And if she has not exactly followed the sea, in her own person, she has in that of her ancestry, on both sides of the house. Her father was a sailor, her two grandfathers were sailors, and her four great-grandfathers, and from them she has inherited her good sea-legs.' "'No doubt of it. No doubt of it,' slowly and approvingly replied the old skipper, as he gazed admiringly on his little niece. "'Ah, if she had only been a boy, what a sailor I could have made of her!' They were drawing very near to Queenstown now, and in less than half an hour the Asia dropped anchor in the cove of Cork. As soon as the ship was still, the seasick got well and went down to breakfast. After that they returned to the deck to look out upon the coast of Ireland." As the Asia was to wait there for some hours to get the last mail, many of the passengers went on shore. Our party remained on the steamer. In the afternoon, the excursionists returned. The ship made preparations for sailing. Our party sitting on the deck, and all feeling perfectly well now that the ship was still, overheard some gruesome words from one of the men. That bank of clouds in the west means mischief and dirty weather ahead. "'Do you hear that, Jack Tar?' inquired the old skipper of his little niece. "'Yes, Uncle Gideon,' she answered, lifting her large blue eyes to his face. "'And do you know what dirty weather ahead means?' "'Yes, Uncle Gideon.' "'Well, what does it mean?' "'Why, it means furious storms to come.' "'Did you ever hear the phrase before?' "'No, Uncle Gideon.' "'Then how do you know what it means?' "'I don't know, but the meaning seems plain enough.' "'Oh, then I must tell you how you know.' by instinct, by inheritance, just as the blind kitten knows a dog the instant it scents his approach. I should think you would not only know what dirty weather means, but also the signs of its coming. Even I, who am neither a sailor nor the son of a sailor, can tell the signs of its presence, said Wynnette. They are a ship deluged with rain and dilapidated by wind, slopped all over by waves and holding several hundred human wretches, all deadly sick at their stomachs. If that is not dirty weather, I don't know the meaning of words. And that is just such weather, Miss Wynnette, as we shall be likely to have, more or less, for the next ten days or longer. And the officers and men know it and are preparing for it. But never you mind, little Jack Tar. We shall not go down. And as for the rest, you can stand the storm. You are a natural-born sailor. 
As the old skipper spoke, the signal gun was fired, and the Asia steamed out of the cove. The sun had now set behind a heavy bank of clouds. The wind had risen with more force than on the preceding evening, and blew so freshly that all the passengers, with the exception of a few weather-beaten men and well-seasoned voyagers, went below. All our party, with the exception of the old skipper and his little niece Rosemary, not only went down, but turned in to be looked after by the hard-worked stewardess, or not unfrequently by one of the stewards. "'You don't want to go below to the stifling cabins, do you now, little Jack Tar?' inquired Captain Grandier of his small companion. "'No, Uncle Gideon, I do not, indeed. I should much rather stay up here with you as long as I may,' replied the child. "'Thought so, and so you may.' "'Ah, if heaven had given me such a boy!' "'But, Uncle Gideon, although I can walk the deck when the ship is rolling, without falling or turning sick, I know I should not make a good sailor-boy,' said Rosemary. "'Why not, pray? I say you would make a good sailor-boy. Why, every one of the passengers has gone down and turned in as sick as dogs, and here you are as well as I am.' "'But I couldn't be a sailor-boy, because—because what? Because I should be afraid to climb the ropes and things so high.' I should be afraid of falling on the deck and killing myself, or falling into the sea and getting drowned, pleaded Rosemary. Now don't go to tell me that you have inherited your sailor forefathers, sea heads and sea legs, without their stout hearts. Don't go to tell me that, said the skipper, taking his pipe from his mouth and staring down at his little companion. The quaint little creature looked so ashamed of herself that the old man took pity on her and said, Ah, well, you are nothing but a bit of a girl, after all and the very tiniest mite of a girl for seventeen years of age that I ever saw in my life. Well, you shan't be a sailor and work on board ship. You shall be a dainty little lady in your own house. With servants to attend you when you go up or down. Come now, tell your old uncle a secret. Isn't my lord sweet on you? And the old sailor took his pipe from his mouth and poked the stem of it into her side. Sweet on me, echoed Rosemary in perplexity. In love with you, then. Every girl knows what that means as soon as she knows her right hand from her left, or sooner. Tell me the truth now. Isn't the earl in love with you? Oh, no, exclaimed Rosemary, in all sincerity. For although she knew that Lord Enderby had proposed to marry her, it never occurred to her to think of his being in love with her, or anybody else, because she considered him so much too old for her, old enough to be her father, as in truth he was. "'Well, then, I don't know the weather signs in that latitude, that's all. "'His eyes are never off you, child. "'If he has not told you he loves you, he will do so soon. "'You must then refer him to me. "'I am the head of the family, and in the lack of your father must stand in his shoes. "'You are very young to marry, Rosemary, only just seventeen. "'And I should accept his lordship's offer only with the understanding that he should wait for you a year. "'But then I should accept him, my girl.' for it is not often that an English earl offers marriage to the daughter of a merchant captain, even though she is a little beauty, and does come of a good family. And Enderby is a good sort. That is better than being an earl. He is a good sort. Here the old man put his pipe in his mouth and smoked on in silence for some minutes, during which Rosemary sat by his side in dumb distress. At last the skipper took out his pipe, blew off a cloud of smoke that went floating over the sea, and then he said, so you understand, my dear, that I, the head of your family, entirely approve the suit of Lord Enderby. Rosemary was ready to cry. But, Uncle Gideon, I don't want to marry the Earl. I like him so very much. I love him, I love him dearly. 
He is the best man I ever saw in my life, and I do love him dearly, dearly, but I couldn't marry him, and I wouldn't marry him for the whole wide world, exclaimed Rosemary, with her little face and frame all quivering with her earnestness. Well, upon my word, muttered the old skipper, laying down his pipe for good and all, and staring at his little niece, but to no purpose, for they were sitting in deep shadow now, and he could not see her face. You love the earl dearly, and would not marry him for the world? That is crazy talk. What do you mean by it? Why, one does not want to marry people because one loves people. I love you and Uncle Force and Cousin Lee and Sam and Ned and ever so many more. But I would not marry any of you for all the world, even if I could. And I love Lord Enderby more than I do all the others. But I would not marry him. I would die first. Then I know what is the matter. The secret is out. You love someone else even better than you do the Earl. Is not that so? I am the head of the family, Rosemary, and I have a right to know. Uncle, whispered the little creature, in a tremulous voice, as she clasped her tiny hands over her heart, speaking frankly under the friendly cover of the darkness. Uncle, I am not free to marry the Earl, even if I wished to do so, which indeed I do not. I am engaged to Roland Bayard. Good Lord, bless my soul alive, exclaimed the old man. Since when, if you please? Oh, I don't know, Uncle Gideon, but I have been engaged to Roland for years and years and years. Bless my soul and body. It is a sacred bond, and I wouldn't break it even if I could. Ah, the love that grew from childhood, was that it, Rosemary? Yes, dear Uncle Gideon. Well, he's a good sort, too, is Bayard. As the old skipper spoke, one of the stewards came on deck with a message from Mrs. Force. Would Captain Grandier be so good as to send Miss Hedge down to the ladies' cabin, as it was too late and too cold for her to remain on deck? I will take you down myself, said the old man. And he escorted the girl to the door of her stateroom and bade her good night. Rosemary was soon asleep in the upper berth of the room she shared with Wynnette. But the old skipper spent hours on deck before he turned in. Chapter 10. The Privateer Argent. What a night! The wind rose to a hurricane. It had a thousand voices. It hummed, sang, whistled, and hurrahed as it danced in the rigging. It moaned, wailed, howled, and shrieked as it knocked the ship about. The steamer rocked, tossed, and tumbled in the stormy sea, now rising high upon a heaving wave, now dropping into the gulch of the sea. Passengers could not sleep that night. It was as much as they could do to hold on and keep their places in bed. Those on the upper berths were in danger of serious falls. Rosemary, who shared Wynnette's stateroom and slept in the upper berth, let herself down by a series of difficult but successful gymnastics and lay upon the sofa trembling. Presently she crept to the door, opened it a little way, and peeped into the cabin. The place was quiet, the doors of the other staterooms all closed, and no one present but the local night watchman, sitting composedly by the single light. She closed the door, crept back to the sofa, and lay down again. Presently, she said, "'Wynnette, how can you sleep through this?' "'Sleep!' cried Wynnette. "'Who's asleep? Not I. Who could sleep through such a demoniac opera as this? Rosemary, the Germans swear ten thousand devils, in their own language, and I think the whole ten thousand German devils must be holding an open-air concert, after the manner of their musical countrymen.' and that right around our ship. Only they are all roaring drunk, and every one singing and playing and piping and blowing out of tune. I never heard such a hullabaloo in my life. Oh, Wynnette, do you think there is any danger? 
No, I don't. If there was, the passengers would all be out of their berths and dressed to be ready for the lifeboats. And there would be a great running and racing and pulling and hauling and cursing and swearing on deck. And the officers would all be blaming the men's eyes and livers and lights, too. Encourage them, you know. And making a hullabaloo to be heard above the hurricane. And much more horrible than the hurricane, too. No, there can be no danger yet. But would all that profanity go on in a beautiful ocean steamer? inquired Rosemary. A good deal of it would on occasion. You may bet your best boots on that. Oh, I wish it was morning, sighed Rosemary. So do I. But if wishes were horses, beggars would ride, you know. Morning came at length, however, and as the sun arose, the wind went down, but not entirely, for it still blew and often started up in gusts. None of our party appeared at the breakfast table. or even afterward on deck, except the old skipper and Rosemary. The day passed wearily. At intervals, Captain Grandier visited the Earl in his stateroom, and Rosemary her friends in their own. Both visitors found the sick ones cross and sulky, and so indisposed to be friendly and social that they were speedily left to themselves. People are no more responsible for their behavior when they are seasick than if they were lunatics. At night, all hands turned in early. and the wind rose and blew a hurricane all night. And as the day had passed, so the week passed. Sunday came. As the weather continued to be tempestuous, the passengers remained seasick. No one came up on deck except the old skipper and his grandniece. The old man was dressed in his Sunday clothes and carried a Bible, a prayer book, and a hymn book in his hand. He drew his little companion away to a comparatively sheltered part of the deck, and they sat down to read the service for the day. the old man reading for the minister's part from the book, and the young girl making the responses from memory. Then he read the lessons for the day, and finally they sang a hymn. At dinner-time they went to the saloon, but found it almost deserted. The ensuing week proved quite as tempestuous as the one just passed. They were, in fact, suffering from a series of equinoctial storms. When the ship reached the banks of Newfoundland, they experienced some variety of weather in the shape of blinding snow and stinging sleet, added to howling winds and leaping waves. None but the officers and crew of the steamer, and our old skipper ventured on deck. Even Rosemary stayed below. It is hard enough to keep one's feet on a rolling deck when it is dry, or on an icy surface when it is still, but to stand or walk on the sleety boards of a rocking ship is well-nigh impossible to anyone but a seasoned old salt. So Rosemary, as well as her companions, kept to the cabin or the saloon. To as many as were able to appear on the common ground of the last-mentioned place, the old man made himself very useful and agreeable in helping them to pass away the long days, and especially the long evenings. He told stories, sang songs, and recited poetry, miles of poetry, which he said he had committed to memory in the lone watches of his half-century of sea-life. All this time the steamer was not flying, not even running, but as it were, only tumbling against the wind and weather toward the port of New York. But it happened on one fine morning, when the winds and the waves fell, and the sun shone brightly and warmly, and seasick passengers got well and came out on deck like hibernating animals in the spring. They spied a pilot boat, number 15, coming toward them. There was a general jubilee. They were not yet in sight of land, but they could not be far from port, for the pilot boat was coming. Half an hour later, the pilot boat was alongside, and the pilot on deck, with a batch of the latest New York and Washington papers, and with news, such news. A crowd gathered around him at once. His papers were taken right and left, 
and all the men turned eagerly to the first columns of the first page of his own particular sheet to read, latest dispatches from the seat of war. Before every man's face fluttered the open newspapers like spread sails while they devoured the news. But the pilot's oral news, which was so very fresh that it had not had time to get into the morning papers, was more interesting to our immediate party than all the rest. Mr. Force, who was deep in news from the peninsula, caught the words, Lieutenant Commander Force, and he looked up. The pilot was hastily and excitingly recounting some adventure to a group of men gathered around him to listen. Among these was the old skipper Grandier, who seemed eagerly interested. The pilot spoke hurriedly, for he had presently to take command of the ship to carry her into port. Mr. Force dropped his paper and joined the group. "'What is it?' he inquired of Gideon Grandier. But the old man was too intent upon the words of the pilot to hear any others. "'What is it?' inquired Mr. Force again. Then the pilot stopped to answer him. "'The blockade-runner Argent, Captain Silver, sir, taken off of the coast of South Carolina by the United States ship Eagle, Captain Warfield, Silver, and his first officer, and all his crew who were not killed in the fight, taken prisoners and put in irons.' The Eagle put a part of its own crew on board the Argent, under command of Lieutenant Force, who brought the prize safely into port this morning, with Silver and his first officer in irons. "'Thank heaven!' exclaimed Captain Grandier. "'But do you call her a blockade-runner only? She's an infernal pirate. She took my kitty. And Silver shall hang for it.' "'And the Argent is now in New York Harbor?' inquired Mr. Force. "'No, sir. She was telegraphed from the Navy Department to sail at once for Washington.' and she sailed an hour ago. End of chapter 10